I suppose many of you have um, many of you have heard the uh, the curse. It's sometimes called the Chinese curse. Uh, it goes like this: May you live in interesting times. And then the full full strength version is: May you live in interesting times and attract the attention of important people. And it's an ironic curse. It's actually, according to Wikipedia, at least, there's no um, evidence that it comes from China. It is just attributed to China. I think when we make something up, we say it's those people over yonder. So, um, so that curse is is an ironic curse. Obviously, it's a lot safer to to live in boring times. Um, but uh, if you get through it, then you can look back and see what's interesting. So, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna start a new series of uh, uh, messages uh, this week, uh, looking at the life of Elijah because he's somebody who lived in interesting times, and he did attract the attention of important people. So uh, that's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. And um, <clears throat> uh, this Elijah guy who lived in these interesting times, he was or he is called the greatest of Old Testament prophets. So in um, in uh, Jewish uh, uh, commonplace language of the first century, uh, Elijah was a shorthand for basically half of the Bible. The, the first half or the first part was the books of Moses, the five books of the Torah, and they were called Moses. And all the other prophets were just kind of lumped in under the heading of Elijah. So you could say, you could refer to the Bible simply by saying Moses and Elijah. That's how big um, a uh, prophet he was. In the, um, in the book of the prophet Malachi, God promises to send Elijah back before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So it's this, you know, it, of all the prophets, not, not, um, Ezekiel or Hosea, but, but Elijah. So he is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And yet he's, he's a curious figure because why? You know, what did he do to make him the greatest of Old Testament prophets? I'm not disputing it. I'm just saying it seems odd. You know, he's, he's only in two books of scripture, the first and second book of Kings. He's barely in the second book of Kings. Um, and he's only in a total of four and a half chapters of those two books. If you compare that to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah's got 66 chapters, okay, in, in just the one book of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, the, the whole story of, of Elijah fits into 120 verses. The book of Isaiah has 1200 verses. So why is he, why is he the greatest prophet? There are minor prophets whose story or whose whose uh, prophecy, book of prophecy, people like Hosea or Zechariah, whose books are actually longer than the story of of um, of Elijah. So why is he the greatest Old Testament prophet? And I think part of the answer is he did live in interesting times. But we're going to be exploring over the next several weeks the other reasons for the answer to that question. What makes him the greatest, um, the greatest of the prophets? But, but what I want to, to do today is just set the table, just to kind of get the sense of where we're headed, um, to introduce the cast of characters and kind of get the lay of the land. Uh, but there will be an answer to one question at least. One question we're going to see the answer to right away that we learn from the story of Elijah is, when should you try to change things? You know, you've got you've got decisions. You you may not know what to change, uh, but if you do, there's the question of timing. When should you get involved? When should you stick your head out? When should you uh, stick your neck out? When should you when should you put your head down? Right? When is the right time 
to try to make changes. And so we will see the answer to that as we as we look at this passage today. So so Elijah is ministering in the northern kingdom of, of Israel uh, about 850 B.C. So um, the, this is about 100 years after the, the nation of Israel has split into two parts. There's the northern kingdom. The bulk of the nation is in the north, and the smaller part is in the south. And so the southern part, because it was smaller, it got the name Judah, and the rest of it kept the name Israel. So, so he is ministering in the northern kingdom where the most of the people are. And um, uh, despite it being the biggest, the biggest uh, uh, nation or the biggest part of the nation, the biggest government kingdom. There we go. Uh, the biggest kingdom. It is. Um, it's not very stable. It's been around for about a hundred years at this point, but there's been uh, several changes of government. There's been four coup d'etats, right? That there's been a series of these ambitious generals who've taken over the 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 country one after another. And in fact, as we as we are introduced to Ahab, we're going to find out he is the son of one of those generals. So so um, that's what's been going on. And uh, the the country is not stable, really, in the way we would expect a country to be. But also, it the, the the rulers it has had have been very bad. The Bible has been has been very clear that from the very first all the way to the most recent, they've all been bad rulers. And the reason for that, um, we will see, has to do with the 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 religious practices of the those countries. So. Um, we will um, we will look at the story starting in verse sixty nine. I'm sorry, sixteen twenty nine. So um, we read um, Ahab rules Israel. So uh, verse twenty nine. In the thirty eighth year of Judah's king Asa, Ahab Omri's son became king of Israel. So um, Asa, the, because there's two countries, what they do is they they date one in terms of the other. That way they can kind of work through the whole chronology. So. Asa is the king of the southern kingdom, and that's the last we'll hear of him. He's not relevant to our story today, but he's just used to date the other things. So uh, at that time, Ahab, who is the son of Omri, Omri is one of those generals, he becomes king of the northern kingdom. So that's establishing our, our timing. And he says, he ruled over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. Okay, so that's... That's the, the quick sketch. And then it says, And he did evil in the Lord's eyes more than anyone who preceded him. So that's a pretty good trick because, because it's been a, a series of bad kings. And um, uh, his, his father, Omri, is described, if we back up a little bit, he's described as having been the worst of the bunch. And so his son now tops his, his record. So um, uh, in verse 31, it says, Ahab found it easy to walk in the sons of Jeroboam, Nebat's son. So Jeroboam was that first general, the first general who caused the country to split apart. So he took you know, Israel with him. And he, he, was, he was considered bad because, um, because what he did was, um, he said, I've got a nation, I've got a chunk of a nation, and the temple of the Lord is in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And I don't want my people going there for their festivals and their their um, sacrifices and so forth. So what I'll do is I'll set up my own temples. So he sets one up in the northern part of Israel and one in the southern part of Israel. And in them, in those temples, he puts golden calves. So he's a bad king. If you read the story of Israel, um, golden calves are always a bad thing. And and um, 
Jeroboam has set up two of them. And then we read that he, um, uh, that this guy is worse. So he found it easy to walk in the sins. He found it easy to walk. That means he didn't break a sweat, right? He could be as bad as, please come in, come in, have a seat. Um, he, he could be as bad as, uh, his, his, uh, not his ancestor, the, the, that early king of his, of his country or his own father, for example, without breaking a sweat. Because what they did is they established idol worship. They made idol worship the, the state religion of Israel. But he tops that. How can you top idol worship? Well, he marries a foreigner. He marries a Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, who is the king of the Sidonians. So the Sidonians are from Sidon, which is in modern-day Lebanon, so north of the northern kingdom. So he marries into that family. He uh, he marries this Ethbaal, who is uh, uh, the high priest of Baal, who then um, uh, took over the government there. And his daughter, um, Jezebel, is the one that, that um, Ahab marries. And sure enough, now Ahab starts worshiping their God. So we read, he served and worshiped Baal. He made an altar for Baal in the Baal temple he had constructed in Samaria. And by the way, he also made a sacred pole for um, Ashtoreth, a Canaanite god, a goddess. So he has now gone from idol worship to introducing false gods. So this is this is even worse. He found it easy to do the first. Anybody can do idolatry, but I'm going to top that. I'm going to to add in um, the worship of these uh, uh, pagan gods. So. So as a result, he did more to anger the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of Israel's kings who preceded him. And then the, the tail end of chapter 16 is just kind of this odd little remark. It says, Heel from Bethel rebuilt Jericho. So Jericho is, according to scholars, it's one of the oldest cities in the world. It's been, uh, they found like 29 layers or something of Jericho uh, down through the ages. And um, what what they're talking about here is that he refortified it. It's in the southern part of the northern kingdom. So he wanted a fortress city, you know, kind of at the bottom of his country so that he could then, you know, be safe from and conduct operations against the southern kingdom. So he says Jericho's in the right spot. Um, and maybe he persuaded Hillel to, uh, Hill to, um, to rebuild the fortifications, to put the wall back up. The wall famously came down when the Israelites uh, came into the land. Joshua led them and they blew their horns and the walls came down. And Joshua said, anybody who rebuilds those walls will be cursed. So, so, um, Heel has done that. Maybe he had, he had sanction from, from Ahab. We don't know. It just mentions it. It doesn't say what's up with that. And it could be that, that Ahab has supported it, that Ahab has actually paid for the, the materials and so forth. Um, or maybe it's just saying, you know, the world is going to the dogs. You know, everything that used to be right in the world is now just going downhill. There's these these messy situations. There's people like Hillel, Hiel, who are building things that that they should know are cursed. So so we don't know why this little remark is put there, but it's it's essentially saying, if nothing else, it's saying the world is is a mess. The world has become a mess because of this this um, bad behavior of of Ahab and his predecessors, and. I think that's the place where we can connect with the story, right? We don't have kings and we don't, so far, we haven't had any military takeovers of the country, but, you know, stay tuned. (laughs) 
stay tuned. We never know what, what might happen um, in 2024. But we haven't had any coups d'etat, right? Our generals generally do what they're told um, they, as opposed to taking over. So so um, that's not really a place we can connect. But what we can connect with is that sense that things aren't what they should be. The world is a mess. That, that may, maybe it's not... Um, uh, rebuilding foundations of, of Jericho, but but it's it's the problems in the world. You know, w- we live in Anchorage, right? Anchorage, Alaska, and we have homeless encampments all over this town. We have people living outdoors in Alaska, and not only that, they're not just living outdoors, but a great number of them have untreated mental illness or untreated addictions, and we just think, well, the world's a mess, right? And the question is, when should we do something about the mess in the world? You've seen the news this week, the little girl, or the, the child, excuse me, who was shot in um, uh, across town as part of that shooting. The world's a mess. People shouldn't, people shouldn't be getting shot anywhere, but especially not children. The world is a mess. And the question for us is, when do we do something about that? When do we say, well, look, I need to try to make a difference. I need to try to change things in this world. And, you know, it's not just the world. Maybe it's our job. Maybe we say, you know, I'm concerned about the safety in this job, that there's unsafe conditions, or maybe there's unethical practices going on, maybe even illegal practices. And we, we have to ask ourselves, when is it time for us to try to change things. We have messy families. And if we're honest, we have messy lives. Some of us have very messy lives. We've got, we've got messy finances. Our health is a mess. Our sexual expression's a mess. Our use of substances is a mess. And some of us, it's like, no, I don't have any of those problems. I'm just unhappy. I don't have those problems, but I'm just miserable. And the question is, when should we try to change these things? When should we try to change our life, our family, our community? Well, we come to chapter 17. And it says, Elijah from Tishbe, who was one of the settlers in Gilead, said to Ahab, Hold on a second. Who is this guy? Who, who is Elijah? We just spent five or six verses telling us about Ahab and how bad he was. His, his, his father, Omri, how his, his predecessor, Jeroboam, was so bad. We get a whole biography of Ahab, but Elijah just shows up. Here's Elijah, Elijah from Tishbe, right? It's one of the settlers in Gilead. We don't know where Tishbe is. Scholars debate. There's five or six theories about where Tishbe might be, right? Uh, he's a settler in Gilead, or maybe the language uh, of the Bible lets it be translated either way. He could be a settler from Gilead. We don't even know where he's from. Something to do with Gilead. And somehow he got close enough to Ahab to tell him something. And, you know, I assume with all those those uh, uh, transitions of power going on in Israel that Ahab probably has bodyguards. And somehow Elijah shows up and talks to him. 
It's like, who is Elijah? We don't know who he is. You know, he shows up to tell the king a message, right? And if we think back to the story of Exodus, right? Moses sees the burning bush, and God speaks to him from the bush, and then Moses argues for two chapters why he shouldn't go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. But Elijah, we don't get a story like that. There's no background. There's no argument. There might not even be a call. You know, if you think of the stories of the prophets, oftentimes we see that, you know, uh, Samuel is a little boy sleeping in the temple and, uh, and he hears God call his name. And God keeps calling his name and finally he says, here I am, Lord. I've heard you calling in the night. Or the story of Isaiah. Isaiah is in the temple and he sees a vision of the Lord high and lifted up and surrounded by the seraphim who are calling to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are filled with his glory. And he hears God say, who shall I send? And he says, send me. But we don't get backstory. We don't know where Elijah comes from. We don't know, did he even get a call? In fact, we don't even know who his father is, right? We know who Ahab's father is. We know who Isaiah's father is Amos. Hosea's father is Baeri, right? We know who the, the fathers of people are. We know their lineage. We don't know Elijah's lineage. And we don't even know if he's Jewish because he comes from Gilead. He could be from the, you know, he's from the other side of the Jordan River. We don't know his background. We don't know anything at all about Elijah, except that he showed up and he said to Ahab, as surely as the Lord lives, Israel's God, the one I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in these years unless I say so. He says, there's going to be a drought, and I'm the only one who can change that. This is a direct challenge to Ahab because this is an agricultural society. If there's no rain, there's no crops. If there's no crops, there's no taxes. If there's no taxes, there's no army and no bodyguards. And you are in a very precarious position, Ahab. It's a challenge directly to Ahab. But it's more than that. It's a challenge to Baal because Baal is a storm god and a god of fertility. And if there's no rain, there's no storm, there's no rain. And if there's no rain, it doesn't matter how fertile the ground is, nothing's going to grow in it. So Elijah shows up and he challenges the king and the king's God. And then, only now, then, Elijah is fully committed And now, we read, then the Lord's word came to Elijah. And he gives Elijah these instructions. He says, go hide in the the ravines near the river Jordan, right? Ahab's not going to find you there. And he's probably not going to look because there's nothing to eat, but it's okay. I'm going to send you a black feathered DoorDash. So he says, you can drink from the brook, and I've ordered the ravens to provide for you there. And Elijah went and did what the Lord said, and he stayed by this Kareth brook that faced the Jordan River. And sure enough, the ravens do provide bread and meat twice a day, and he drank from the Kareth brook until it dried up. So, 
What is the lesson here? What is the lesson for us? What can we take from this? You know, the question is, when do you try to change things? When do you try to change things? We, we could say, when I see the burning bush. But there's no record that Elijah saw a burning bush. There's no record that Elijah heard a call in the night. There's no record that Elijah got knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. Elijah just saw a problem and went to Ahab with it. Maybe maybe what Elijah did, you know, we, we don't know why Elijah came. Uh, maybe, maybe he did get that call. We don't know. But maybe he just took Leviticus seriously. In Leviticus 26, um, we read this, this promise. God makes a bunch of promises and he says, he says, if you don't obey me, if despite all that you still do not obey me, I will turn your sky to iron and your land to bronze and your land will not produce its yield. And maybe Elijah just said, hey, I take my Bible seriously. What you're doing is going to get us all in a lot of trouble. I don't want the sky to turn to iron and the land to bronze. So we don't know. We don't know anything about Elijah except he saw a problem and he acted. He believed that it was time to change. He he believed that a change was necessary and he acted. He didn't simply believe. He did something. And we can do the same thing. We can do that in our own life. We can say, I believe change is necessary. And I'm not going to wait for God to call me. I'm not going to wait for some sign that will tell me now is the right time. I'm not going to try to time it. I'm just going to do it. I mean, the sneaker commercial, right? As soon as you know that it's time, as soon as you know that there's a problem, that's a great time to act. That's what Elijah does. And like I said, we don't know. You know, they could just be skipping the details, but, you know, they gave us details of other people. Why not Elijah? Maybe they're skipping details, but maybe they're not. What I do know for sure, though, is Elijah was an ordinary person. There was nothing that stood out about Elijah at all. And the reason I know that isn't because I'm guessing. It's because the New Testament tells me that. In the letter to, uh, uh, in the letter of James, James says in so many words, Elijah was a person just like us. And if Elijah can go to a king based on a conviction that something has to change, we can deal with the change in our own lives. We can say, yeah, something's got to change, and we can act on that. So when should you try to change things? When you are persuaded, when you believe that change is necessary. And if you do, if you do, if you act on that, that's when you should start watching for ravens. The amazing thing about the story of Elijah is that God is angry. And then God says to Elijah, let me help. I'm going to guide you so you'll be protected, and I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide ravens for you. So act, and then watch for ravens. Because God... God may give you help from unexpected quarters. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Help us to be like Elijah. To go into situations that we believe need to be changed. Not because we got a perfect timing or because we we had a vision on the road to Damascus. Not because we heard a burning bush, but simply because it needed changing. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves and know the places in our lives and in our community that need change. And then give us the courage to know that if we step out in faith, ravens will follow. We ask this to Christ our Lord. Amen.